Good morning. We continue our study this morning. Context is key. What does that verse mean by what it says? We'll continue after we pray. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for another beautiful day of life, Lord's Day gathering for which we are privileged to participate in. We ask for your blessing on our time throughout all the classes, this Sunday school hour I'm here, um, and in preparation um, to worship as your people come in from throughout the county. We pray for your blessing on this day, and that your name will be high and lifted up. In Christ's name, amen. Um, why do sincere Christians frequently misuse biblical texts and fail to recognize um, their misuse by others. There are a number of reasons for that. Um, The first, of course, um, is 2 Peter 3 warns that it is due to false teachers who twist the scriptures um, to their own destruction. Another reason is that some texts are just difficult to interpret. Peter also tells us that his fellow apostle Paul, um, some of the things for which he writes are difficult to understand. And for us, you know, being separated from the biblical authors, um, two or three millennia, um, we must be responsible to search out reliable reference tools on culture, language, and history. And if not, we will be inclined to read biblical texts in light of our own modern customs, values, and language use. Another reason is the practice of proof texting. Proof texting. Grabbing a phrase or a verse um, to support one's um, presupposition, um, although it is contrary um, to the original context. Um, The next verse we want to look at is used by Arminians as a proof text for Jesus wanting to do something but could not do that something. He was hindered by man's will as tears rolled down his face, they say. And the text for our consideration is Matthew 23, verse 37. Matthew 23, verse 37. It reads, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. I've heard this preached by men who say, Jesus is looking over the city at Jerusalem and he's weeping. Now, many people assume four things about this text. Number one, Jesus here um, wanted to save the Jews who inhabited the city of Jerusalem. Two, Though he desired to do this, he he could not. 
Christ would have, but they would not, so, so he wept. Number three, the reason for this was their um, stubborn refusal um, to allow themselves to be gathered, um, concluding that for the grace of God to achieve its objective in the salvation of souls, um, it's dependent upon the will of man. Now, despite all the wooing and um, all the drawing um, desires of Almighty God here, His grace can never overcome the stubborn will of man, they say, unless man chooses to cooperate. Um, therefore, God is oftentimes left frustrated. That Christ really tried His best here to get the individual people of Jerusalem to come unto him, um, even to the point of tears, they said. Now, it may shock you, but none of those assumptions are true when we look at the text. This text, as I said, is often preached as Jesus, um, looking over the city of Jerusalem, um, tears rolling down his face. Now, we see the same words in Luke 13, no tears are mentioned. In Luke 19, we do read that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. It's a different setting, and he spoke different words. But as we observe this text, as we look at the context, um, there is no reason to interpret this as Jesus wringing his hands with tears rolling down his cheeks, wanting to save the people of Jerusalem who would not let him. Context. This is a scathing rebuke. Okay, so let's look at the text. This is a scathing rebuke. If you back up to verse 13, look at it. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now, there are eight woes in this passage. Woe, woe, woe to you, hypocrites, scribes, and Pharisees. Woe to you. Verse 15, notice, you make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Verse 17, you fools, you are blind men. Verse 24, you are blind guides, you strain out gnats while you swallow a camel. Verse 25, you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. As I said, this, this verse is a proof text for some to, to try and disprove sovereign grace. That Jesus wanted to gather you, you individual inhabitants of Jerusalem, he wanted to gather you individuals to believe, but you would not allow him. That's what they claim. Dispensational Zionists will use this as a proof text to say, weep for Jerusalem because Jesus did. What Jesus says is, how often I wanted to gather not you individuals of Jerusalem, but your children. And we'll see whose children um, he's referring to as we work our way through here in the next few minutes. 
So context is key. Again, Jesus here, he is laying the wood to the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes who, who look down on everyone else, and here he's mocking them. He is um, ruthlessly ridiculing them publicly. Openly, publicly calling them out that they are irreligious, impious, hypocrites. Woe, woe, woe to you. To you. Number one, um, we read nothing about Jesus weeping. Right? Nothing about him weeping. He's rolling out open rebuke harsh rebuke, and when he says Jerusalem, he's not referring to the inhabitants of the city, but to the scribes and Pharisees who are representatives of the religious order of Jerusalem, who, verse 29, kill the prophets. Look at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You serpents, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Verse 34, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Verse 37, how often I wanted to gather your children together. That is, those under their oversight. How often I wanted to gather your children, not you as individuals, in the city of Jerusalem, but those under your authority, hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. Referring to, back up to verses 1 and 2, those who sit on Moses' seat. There was no literal seat of Moses there. It's a figure of speech for the place or the seat of authority. Amen? The seat of authority those who did everything within their power to influence and keep the people of Jerusalem from believing in Jesus. Verse 13, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Remember what Jesus said? He says, I did not come for the righteous. That is, those who think they're righteous. I came for sinners. That is, those who know they're sinners. They realize the fact that they are sinners. So Jerusalem here um, refers to the scribes and Pharisees who were trying to put up roadblock after roadblock to keep the population of Jerusalem from coming to Christ, Yahweh's promised Messiah, the one they refused to recognize as God's only son. Woe to you. Verse 38, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That is to say, Judaism as a religion is dead. And here's Jesus driving the last nail into the coffin of a dead religion. Because its fulfillment was not rightly recognized by its leaders. 
he was rejected by Jerusalem's leaders. While they, Jerusalem, those who sit on Moses' seat, attempted to dissuade the masses of Jerusalem. For I say to you, verse 39, to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, the only place that you will see the Son of Man is in judgment. Judgment. And that judgment, of course, will, will be put on display um, in 70 AD when Jerusalem will be raised to the ground, serving as a precursor to final judgment. So this has nothing to do with Jesus crying uncontrollably. Okay? Nothing about if only in your free will you would have accepted me, uh, but you didn't, therefore my heart weeps because I couldn't. None of that. This is a harsh rebuke to those in religious leadership who were prohibiting the people under their care to see Jesus as the Christ, Yahweh's promised Messiah. It's a rebuke. So my question is, why do very notable preachers, very notable preachers, preach this text stressing that Jesus is weeping, saying, I wanted to gather you, but you wouldn't let me? Some of them have been inquired. They've, they've been asked that question. And some have actually answered, because it preaches so well. It really moves people. If you answer, but it doesn't say that. It's almost like some will say, well, don't bother me with the details because it preaches well. Um, another, don't bother me with details because it preaches well, is found in the book of Revelation. So we'll move on now from Matthew 23 to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Three, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. You know, I hear this verse cited oftentimes for the sake of evangelism as kind of um, the gospel closer, if you will. <laughs> I frequently hear my dear, dear brothers probably almost weekly. My dear brothers on K-Wave Radio who will say at the end of their message, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart right now. Jesus is standing at the heart of every unconverted person just tenderly knocking. And because he's a gentleman, he will not barge in. As a matter of fact, he, he can't even enter because on that door, there's only one latch and it's on the inside. 
Only you can open that door. You ever heard this? You must lift that latch so he can come in into your heart and save you. Context is key. Number one, he's not speaking to the lost. He's speaking to those who are saved. Number two, he's not speaking to individuals, but to a congregation, this one in Laodicea. This is a warning to them. A warning to the church in Laodicea, applicable to any congregation that is becoming lukewarm. That's the context. Verse 15, chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. (laughs) So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now what's interesting about um, Laodicea is that for all of that city's resources, um, its strong economy at this time in history, its fabric industry, its medical college, uh, many of cheap achievements for, for which they boasted about, the thing that they lacked most of all was life's most basic resource, water. Water, fresh water. And historians have pointed out that Laodicea had an aqueduct problem. Wanting to run hot water in from hot springs and cold water in from a natural mountain resource, hot water in Aeropolis, cold water from Colossae. Along the way, um, it arrived neither hot nor cold, uh, but lukewarm with sediment in it. So Jesus uses all of this as, as metaphor for the heart condition of the congregation in Laodicea who profess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the context. Now, another false premise here is that many Christians read this and they interpret it as Jesus saying, I would rather that you be either on fire for me or just cold towards me. And that's not what he's saying. What's more likely in view here is the contrast between therapeutic waters, hot waters, piped in from Aeropolis, from their hot springs, or cold mountain water piped in from Colossae, and in between those two ancient cities, there was Laodicea, right in the middle. You're neither hot nor cold. I'd rather you be hot or cold. Hot's good, cold's good. I wish you were hot, because hot water um, invigorates, it's medicinal. Or, I wish you were cold. Cold water's refreshing. So, both hot and and cold is good. But, 
due to your tepid spiritual temperature, I want to vomit you out of my mouth, says our Lord. You're ineffective. So this, this church has taken on the characteristics of her city, um, of her water. It's lukewarm. And Jesus said, you know, your apathy, your, your half-hearted devotion, I just want to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, notice, it's not that they were tolerating doctrinal heresy, you know, a Balaam-like figure, um, a, a false prophetess like this Jezebel. We read about those um, incidents in Pergam- the, the church of, of uh, Pergamum and Thyatira. They aren't practicing the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus hated. Notice there's no mention of persecution either at the church of Smyrna because they were standing for Christ. They were standing for the gospel. Their problem is that they they haven't enough attitude or, or conviction to either hate or love the things that Christ loves and hates. They're just there in the middle, in between. Just like they're in between Aeropolis and Colossae. And notice the deception, verse 17. For you say, now you all say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So Jesus here takes the spiritual temperature of this church, and it's rarely what we ever expect when he takes our temperature, amen. Now, the the church of Laodicea would never have thought of themselves as pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched, in dire need of rescue. So being assessed as poor, he, he strikes at the heart of their character and pride. And on top of that, here's a city, a city that prided itself on, on famous ISAV that this medical institution came up with, and he says, you're blind. They were also known for producing um, expensive black woven um, garments there. And he said, you're naked. So you're known for your clothing, but you're naked. You're known for your eye salve in your medical school, but you're blind. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness it may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So he goes on, I want you to buy from me that which you need. Buy from me. See, from the standpoint of man's kingdom, if you don't have it, what do you do? You buy it. The Lord's kingdom doesn't work that way. It operates on an entirely different set of rules 
buy from me, he says. So those whom he loves, he rebukes, he disciplines, right? Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. We see that here. And notice, and then he invites them to dinner. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So Jesus just said, those whom I love, I discipline. So it is those, those who are his own, that he chastens. So we must not rip this out of its ecclesiastical context, amen, and twist it for the sake of evangelism. Where, you know, Jesus, the the weary traveler, standing outside in the rain, is going from house to house, that is, heart to heart, gently tapping, just hoping that you'll open that door. Because there's nothing he can do unless you do. Sappy. It's just not biblical. Sounds good. It moves you emotionally. But this metaphor has nothing to do with that scene. All that to say. This is addressed to the already people of God, a miserable, wretched, poor, blinded, naked people of God who didn't realize it. (laughs) That's what this is. Until he exposed them for what they they were. It's a call for repentance to the church of Jesus Christ. So some will say, okay, perhaps you're thinking this, but really, I mean, is it text abuse? I mean, if a verse is inaccurately used to make a very important point, is it? I mean, you know, I, you know the idea of Jesus knocking on the uh, heart of a sinner, that's pretty moving. It stirs me. Is it really text abuse? Come on, aren't we being too picky? Is it text abuse? Short answer, yes. It is. But for some, even though it's not accurate, the ends justify the means. You take, for instance, today. The evangelical landscape is littered with false teachers, many of whom are are female preachers, female pastors. That's an oxymoron, number one. who many Christian women flock to, to hear. And although these women, when you listen to them, their Trinitarian theology and knowledge of atonement is flat out heretical, some of these Christian women will will overlook it because her stories about her kids are just so cute. Her stories about family and in, in, in life are just so real. So down to earth. So for them, the end justifies the means. The cost? Gospel integrity. But she moves me. 
the picture of Jesus standing on the, on the, on the, on the stoop of every human soul moves me. But it's not here. It comes at a theological cost. Because Christ is not pleading. Again, Christ is not pleading on every sinner's spiritual doorstep. He does not need to beg, nor does he need to badger anyone into the kingdom of heaven. John 6, 37, all, all that the Father gives to me, what? They will come to me. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, salvation is not merely a matter of Jesus getting um, a foot inside the door of your heart. It's a work of total transformation. Amen. It's Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I, says the Lord, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my ways. Most important of all is the fact that salvation is not triggered by an act of the sinner's will. This is God's miraculous intervening work to rescue sinners from the just penalty that is due. And we see that in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. So is it really text abuse? Because a particular text preaches so well? It really moves hearts? So even though this metaphor or this idea is not in the text, um, to us, many say, uh, uh, the end justifies the means, or the means justifies the end. So is it verse abuse to inaccurately use a text to make a point? Answer, yes. And we'll call it a day. You know, I know some of these things are, are shocking to us. and um, You know, in Luke 19... Regard, regarding Jesus weeping, we read in Luke 19 that he wept over Jerusalem there. It's a different account. The other one that I read is, is an absolute indictment against the religious leaders of the city of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, you can go read the words, uh, um, talk about moving words with regard to um, judgment that was looming over the city of Jerusalem. Go read the account of Jesus 
where, where he actually did weep over the city in Luke 19. You don't read him weeping here. He's not wringing his hands. If only you would come to me. No. He's addressing the hypocritical religious sect of the day who were responsible to lead the people of Jerusalem. Amen. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for the word. Um, Help us not to misinterpret your word. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth. Many texts are indeed difficult to understand, so help us in our finiteness to more greatly grasp that which is written. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.